Well, you can be seated. Take your Bibles out. We'll be reading a portion from the Scriptures in just a moment. What a word of introduction before we do. This morning we come to the third and final act of the great divine drama of redemption that we've been looking at as we've looked over the past week um, at the work of Christ uh, in His redemptive work for us. We've been steadily stepping through these events of Jesus' final week of ministry leading up to the crucifixion and today to the resurrection. And that is our topic this morning, the resurrection of Christ, the physical bodily rising of Jesus on the third day from the dead, that final act of Christ's earthly work of redemption. You know, we say that this is a work of redemption. We often tend to think that Jesus' redemptive work ended on the cross with the, with the cry from His lips, it is finished. And while it is true that on the cross, full and complete payment for the sins of God's people was fully made, it is also true that that is not the end of the story. There is more. A glorious saying, absolutely vital, or a glorious saving, absolutely vital act. The resurrection is not an add-on. It's an essential part of Christ's work. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul said regarding that in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sin. In fact, just before he says that, he defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. Far from being an add-on, the resurrection is a huge deal. There is a huge weight on the truth of the empty tomb. Christianity stands and falls, or stands or falls, on the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, throughout His ministry, made many claims, did many things. And His repeated claims that He would be killed but rise on the third day are just the delusional ravings of a deceiver or a deranged mind if he didn't rise from the dead. So there's great emphasis to make clear that the tomb was empty on the morning of the third day and that Jesus did rise from the dead in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the other books of the New Testament. There is a great emphasis on the truth of the resurrection. It is a central doctrine of Christianity. By the resurrection, the atonement was declared by God to have been received and effective. It was God's stamp of approval on the rest of the work of Christ. By the resurrection, Christ was openly declared to be whom He claimed to be, namely God Himself. And all of his claims were substantiated. By the resurrection, our own future resurrection was foreshadowed and assured. So this morning, I want to draw to your attention this all-important act. 
And I want to do it this morning by looking at the events themselves, by looking at the the record of the resurrection. Or rather, to the record of the discovery of the resurrection. Because remember, we noted on Friday evening regarding the crucifixion that the gospel writers are really very brief in describing the events themselves. The crucifixion. It simply says, they crucified him. And then they went on to other things. Uh, They said, having crucified him, and then goes on and describes other things. And in the case of the resurrection, we have the same. The writers do not argue for the resurrection, for they simply state it as the truth that it is. And they record for us the discovery of the resurrection. Now, of course, today many reject it, most reject the resurrection of Christ, and they do so because they have determined already beforehand that people do not rise from the dead, and so on materialistic grounds they deny the resurrection. They reject it because they do not have faith. Scripture, though, is clear. Jesus, dead and buried on Friday evening, was raised to life again in the same body, now glorified, on the first day of the week according to the Scriptures. And belief in the resurrection is essential Christian belief. Again, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what? and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As with the account of the crucifixion, each of the gospel writers focuses on different aspects of the the discovery of the resurrection, the record of the resurrection. We talked about that with the crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John all tell the story uh, from different angles with different emphases. Some include some things that the others leave out, but they all tell one story. They don't contradict one another, either with the crucifixion or with the resurrection. They all agree on the facts of the resurrection, and we're going to turn to one of those records now. It's Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. That will be our text this morning. We're going to look at verses, uh, read verses 1 through 12. We'll be looking uh, in a topical way at this this morning as we look at the, uh, the record of the resurrection. But let's read uh, this wonderful event and the discovery of it as Luke records it in chapter 24. We'll read verses 1 through 12 and let's stand together as we read God's word. Luke writes this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. 
Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we remind ourselves through your word of these events, that you would cause them to well up in our hearts a great joy. We pray that we would learn this morning. We pray that we would worship this morning. We pray that we would give praise and honor and thanksgiving to you for what you have done through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now remember, just a a brief review for those of you who may not have been here on Friday and for those who may be unfamiliar with all of these events, all of the story, and remember that the, the take of these last three sermons on Palm Sunday and on Good Friday and this morning have all been to focus on, on the record of the events themselves. Because there are a lot of people, especially today, who don't know about these events. There are many Christians who don't know except very superficially what took place. And so we want to... Uh, take our time here and work through these events. And remember that Jesus, just one week before this, had entered into Jerusalem, and he was heralded at that time the king, the son of David, the king of Israel. As people uh, laid the the palm branches and their clothing on the the ground as Jesus rode into town on a donkey. Uh, But the religious leaders, remember, out of hatred and envy, sought to find a way to rid themselves of Jesus, and finally found it when one of the twelve, one of Jesus' closest uh, followers, Judas, came and agreed to hand Jesus over to them for 30 pieces of silver. That plan was executed, and when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and and they came and arrested him... um, and brought him before first the Jewish religious leaders, remember where false witnesses and false charges were, were brought against him. He was then taken to the Roman officials, those who had the power to put him to death. And while he was there before Pontius Pilate and before Herod and then back before Pilate again, as they questioned him and asked about these things, these two civil rulers, through their interviews and their questioning of Jesus, came to the conclusion that there was no reason for Jesus to be put to death, that he was not guilty of anything. But because of the insistence of the Jews, the leaders, the religious leaders, and eventually of the people, Jesus was eventually given over to be crucified. He was beaten, stripped, mocked, and killed, and then buried in a borrowed tomb. And then on Sunday morning, the first day of that week, the events that we just read took place. We're going to be looking at these events here. We're also going to be looking at the record of some of the other gospel writers to fill out some of the the things we'll be uh, looking at here. We're going to look at four groups of people um, that were present, that were witnesses, and one other group that was not present, but that has a deep, intimate concern in the resurrection. 
So these are some of the first witnesses of the resurrection that we'll really be looking at this morning. And the first of them were the women, what we'll call the faithful women. In verse 1, the record of the resurrection begins, as it begins in all four Gospels, with a group of women coming to the tomb very early Sunday morning, that borrowed tomb where Jesus had been laid. They come to the tomb in grief. They come to the tomb with sad work that needed to be done, work that they weren't able to do on Friday. Down in verse 10, Luke mentions those who are there, this group of women. The first is Mary Magdalene. Remember, she is known for having been delivered from seven evil spirits by Jesus during his ministry, and she became a dedicated follower of his. She gave of her own substance for the support of Jesus' ministry, and she is among the women who followed Jesus even on his last journey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Mary Magdalene, we read, stayed near the cross through Jesus' crucifixion and followed him to his burial place and saw where he was laid. Along with her was Mary, called the mother of James, that is all, he's also known as James the Less or James the Younger, another follower of Christ. Third is Salome. Salome is the mother of James and John, other disciples of Jesus. An interesting one is the next one, Joanna, who is mentioned. Um, she's mentioned also back in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. She's not mentioned, or yeah, she is in verse 10. Joanna was actually the wife of Herod's household manager. Uh, so she uh, was a, not one you would think would end up being a follower of Christ, but she was and is there on the first day of the week, early in the morning as they come to the tomb. And then it mentions in verse 12 that other women as well were with them. These women doing this out of love for Christ and the compassion uh, that the women demonstrated here, uh, both recorded as being at the cross and coming to the tomb on Friday and now coming back early. Um, they had followed Jesus from Galilee, Luke tells us, uh, and they saw the tomb. That's important that they had been there on Friday and came and followed Jesus to where he was buried. They saw where he was buried. There are all these things peppered through the record here that, that militates against the, the false view that will end up being put together by the Jews and the Romans about what happened. You see, the, the, the women didn't come to a tomb that was the wrong tomb. They had seen where Jesus was put and it is to that tomb that they return on the first day of the week. Now on Friday, they could not continue their work after Jesus was laid in the tomb after sundown, which was when the Sabbath began, and they couldn't do that type of work on the Sabbath. And so they returned home. They began the preparation for the work that they would do as early as possible on the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. They prepared spices. They prepared uh, perfumes and the text says that they rested on the Sabbath day. And then chapter 24 of Luke, verse 1, says that they brought the spices with them on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. These spices were what uh, the Jews would use to, to prepare their dead and to deal with their dead. There was no embalming. Embalming was a, an Egyptian 
practice that had to do with their, their way of preserving the body. The Jews didn't do that. They would anoint a body, they would wrap it with spices and aromatics in the wrappings that they would uh, use on the body. And after Jesus was crucified, his body had been quickly um, and superficially wrapped for burial by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And yes, it's that Nicodemus that uh, took part in that as well. But now on the first day of the week, the first thing on this third day since he was crucified, Sunday, these women come to the tomb to complete the work. But when they arrive, they find several things not as they expect to find them. First, they find that the stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb was rolled back. And that was a concern for them as they came to the tomb. In in other records, uh, as they were on their way, they talked among themselves and were concerned about that. Who is going to roll this stone away for us so that we can uh, continue to deal with the body of Jesus. These stones that were rolled in front of tombs could weigh 2,000 to 4,000 pounds depending on the type of stone and the women couldn't roll that away by themselves. But they find that when they get there, that has already been done for them. Second, and of course most glorious, though at the time perplexing to them, when they arrive to tend to Jesus' body, they find that it is not there. And third, as they stand there wondering about all of this, about what could have happened, they are met by two men, two men in dazzling apparel, the text here tells us, two angels who explain things to them. Now, the coming and going of these of women to the tomb and the other people coming to the tomb here in these opening hours are, as I said, spread across the four Gospels. And it can be a little confusing, and some people look at them and say, well, there are contradictions here. But if you look very carefully at the text, there are no contradictions. And we don't have time to hop from Gospel to Gospel. So let me just summarize for you the the events that happened, who came when, and, and what they did. The women, of course, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome and all the others, they all set out for the tomb very, very early Sunday morning, leaving before the sun even is up. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they hurry ahead of, from the others uh, toward the tomb, and then Mary Magdalene even outpaces the other Mary and comes to the tomb first. And she arrives there in the uh, early morning twilight as the sun is first beginning to, to peek over the horizon. And in that dark light time, she sees that the stone in the front of the tomb, which she and the others had seen rolled in front of it on Friday, has now been rolled away from the entrance. She jumps to the logical conclusion that someone has stolen Jesus' body. And she tears off to go find Peter and John and to let them know what has happened. Meanwhile, the, the other women, they come to the tomb as the sun is rising. They also see the stone gone, but they go in to, to check it out. And they're confronted by two angels, one of whom speaks and tells them that Jesus is not here, that he is risen, and gives instruction to the women to go and to tell his disciples, which they leave and return to do. First, not believing what had happened, but coming to a proper realization of it along the way. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene has found Peter and John, 
And when she tells them that the Lord's body has been stolen, the two of them take off for the tomb, running, we're told. By the way, this is one of those, another one of those little things that, that points to the falseness of the claim that the disciples stole the body, which was one of the things that, uh, that's going to be put forward. If they had stolen the body, they would not have been so concerned to find out if it had really been stolen and probably would have run in the other direction, uh, not run back to what would have been the scene of a crime. John gets there first as Peter and John run toward the tomb, but he doesn't go in. He stops just outside of it, and then Peter, being Peter, kind of barrels past John and goes right into the tomb. Um, And they end up both saying that the tomb is empty. Then they both leave and head back to town. Mary Magdalene, who's followed them, stays outside when she arrives. And after Peter and John leave, she went into the tomb herself and saw the same angels that the other women had seen and speaks with them briefly. Then she leaves the tomb. And when she left the tomb, she, of course, runs into someone that she takes to be the gardener. But then he speaks to her and she recognizes the risen Lord who speaks to her and now sends her to go tell the disciples. The other women are still on their way back to town, the two-mile walk back to town, when they too are met by Jesus. And he instructs them as well to go and to tell the disciples that he had risen. You see, the women are given a great privilege of being the first to see the risen Christ uh, despite their unbelief. You say their unbelief... Aren't we saying that they are the faithful women? Aren't they? Uh, they're not necessarily spoken of here as being unbelieving like the, the, the disciples are a little later. Well, remember, though, that they had been told, along with the disciples early on as Jesus continued his ministry, that he would rise again on the third day. And so if they were really faithful women who, who believed everything that Christ had done and did not have any doubt, they should have been going to the tomb not to anoint a dead body, but to welcome a risen Savior. And the angel points this out to them when he says to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He told you he wasn't going to be here. He's risen. But Christ, of course, in his Grace and his kindness still presents himself alive to them. Matthew 28, 8 and 9 talks about it. John 20, verses 14 through 17, he speaks to them. And to them, to these women uh, who were faithful to follow Christ and to, to show love and compassion to him, they are given the unique task of telling Jesus' disciples that he had again, that he had indeed risen from the dead. They are the first human heralds of the resurrection. What a great honor given to them. To these women who had been at the cross, they had stayed near Christ through his suffering, and they are given this great privilege. What a great honor that we are given privilege to be proclaimers of the resurrection, aren't we? We are given that task to go uh, into the world and to proclaim this message that Christ, who was dead, is risen. 
Well, in the cases here of Mary Magdalene and the rest, their immediate response, of course, when Jesus does meet them, is the appropriate response. They both all fall down at his feet and worship. And that's the only appropriate response of all who meet Jesus. Whether that is back then in a garden, a little bit later on a road like the road to Emmaus. But for us today, when we meet him on the pages of Scripture, in the preaching of the gospel, that message that Jesus, the Son of God, came and took on the nature of man and lived a perfect life in conformity with the law of God, and yet died the death of a sinner since he took on the sin of all of those who would ever trust in him. And that God on the cross poured out his wrath upon Jesus, his sinless son who bore the sin of those who would believe in him. And that our own sin can be forgiven by placing faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that's what we are called to share. That's what we are called to proclaim. Just as it was to these women that Jesus is alive. The faithful women. The second group that we see, we'll call them the instructive angels. We've already mentioned them here in verses 4 through 7. In the chapter, we see Luke's record of the work of the angels. Angels, of course, reveal God's Word. In the Old Testament, they reveal God's Word to various people. They minister to God's people, according to Hebrews 2.6. They ministered as well to Jesus Himself at His temptation and during His suffering in the gardens. They are God's servants, according to Isaiah 6, to do His bidding. But they are spoken of primarily in the Scripture as God's messengers to man. They announced the coming birth of Jesus to Joseph and to Mary. They announced the birth of the Messiah in Luke 2 to the shepherds who were out watching their flocks. And now they announce the resurrection to the women, and they instruct them on the event that has taken place. Luke here and John mention both angels, right? There's this question about, oh, well, some, says, some of the Gospels say there are two angels, others say there are one angel, or there's one angel, oh, a contradiction. But no, if there were two angels, there was one angel. And one angel spoke, and so those writers focus on that. Matthew and Mark focus our attention on the one who speaks. It's not a contradiction at all. But the angels here serve as witnesses of the resurrection to these women, and they do so in three ways. First of all, just by their appearance. Now, angels can certainly uh, appear in normal human form, like the angels that came to Abraham to announce the birth of, of Isaac and to announce the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 18. But these angels, as they are described here, come to announce the resurrection of Christ are described by Matthew as having an appearance like lightning and clothing white as snow. Matthew says that. Luke says that they were wearing here dazzling apparel. There was obviously a supernatural and explicitly supernatural appearance here. And the women's thoughts were certainly raised above a tomb as they encountered them. The idea here is that there is something more going on than just an open tomb. Here in Luke, the women's response 
is one of fear. Verse 5 says that they were frightened and they bowed their face to the ground. But they were instructed by the mere appearance of the angels. They were also instructed by the actions of the angels. Matthew tells us in chapter 28 that one of these angels had come down ahead of time, at least one of them, uh, to do some advance work by rolling back this stone that lay across the opening to the tomb. Again, I mentioned the, the stones that were used to seal these tombs were huge stones, heavy stones. I mentioned 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. They were shaped like a big wheel. You've, you've seen it. And they were large enough to completely cover the opening. They required the coordinated effort of several men to move. They would put them into a, a grooved, a declining grooved uh, depression in front of the the tomb, and then they would be rolled down using gravity into that. Uh, so it took a lot of work then to move that back if it needed to be moved back. This particular stone had the added security of a seal on it, a seal of wax or a, a string sometimes coated with wax around the perimeter of, of this stone with the seal of the emperor on it. We'll see that later, that this uh, was put on there to be sure that nobody got in. But the angel comes and with no effort rolls the stone away. I love that, that we're told that he, that he rolls back the stone from the grave. Why do you think he did that? <laughs> well, you say so Jesus could exit the tomb because he was alive. Well... Maybe, I mean, we'll read later that Jesus can enter locked rooms um, and he did just rise from the dead and he is the God of the universe, so certainly he's able to get out of the tomb without help. And so I submit to you that the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away from the tomb to let the women in. To let those in who would be the witnesses of the resurrection. The angel knew that this tomb was about to have visitors, and so he opened the access to let the world in, to show the world that Christ is risen indeed. So the angels instruct also by their actions, and then finally they instruct the women by their words. Why do you seek the living among the dead again? What are you doing here with things to tend to a dead body? He's not here, he's risen. He puts them in remembrance of Christ's own words among them. Remember, it says, how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Way back, if you look at Luke's gospel, Luke's is the most chronological of the gospels. Uh, We're in chapter 24 here for the resurrection. Way back in Luke chapter 9 was when Jesus began telling his followers that he was going to go to Jerusalem and was going to be killed and was going to rise again the third day. Remember how he told you that, the angel says. He reminds them of that. These women are just like you and I. We all need to be regularly reminded of what Jesus said and of what Jesus taught, of what Jesus did. But the women then, with this heavenly instruction regarding the fulfilled promise of the resurrection, on the third day of the Messiah, the Son of God, they rush back to town and tell all of this to the eleven disciples. Verse 9 here in Luke 24, we read in returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. 
Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And it says that the apostles, remembering the words of Jesus, rejoice with one voice and cry out, The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed as He promised that He would. Well, no. That's not quite the reaction of the disciples. We would think that would be it. But that wasn't, was it? In addition to the faithful women and the instructive angels, we have the doubting disciples. It's often a disappointing experience when we look at the disciples um, in the Gospels because it seems that no matter when we look at them, no matter when we look at their actions, we're always confronted with the fact that they just didn't seem to get it. They never seemed to understand Jesus' words. It never seemed to click until later, until after the resurrection. But let me suggest to you that that should be a comfort rather than a frustration to know that even those who walked day by day for three and a half years with Jesus himself were still men like us. And the women were women like you. They didn't really get it either. And we see this case again here. The women did just as they were told, and the disciples uh, told his disciples that he was risen. But verse 11 says that these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. An idle tale, nonsense, foolishness, the word means, complete and utter nonsense. And they did not believe them. A little bit later, in Luke 24, we read about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Look down, in fact, at verse 21. This was their reaction as they're telling, unbeknownst to them, they're telling Jesus himself about what had happened. They said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. Our hope is gone. This is the way the disciples were. How about you this morning? Christian, when you hear that Christ is risen from the dead, does your heart rejoice? Does your voice rejoice? Are you like the faithful women who at least obey and rush back to spread the word? Or are you like the doubting disciples who think it's nonsense? Same question to any unbelievers who may be listening this morning. And we are proclaiming to you this morning that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified, dead, and buried, but on the third day he rose again from the dead, just as he said he would, and that he calls upon you to believe on him, to trust in him, to turn from your sin, and to follow him from this day forward. How do you receive that? Is it utter nonsense to you? Or do you receive it for what it is, in fact? Not just the record here of life from the dead for Jesus, but the message of spiritual life from the dead for you. If you throw yourself on God's mercy and believe on His crucified and resurrected Son. Everyone hearing this this morning has to deal with that question.
And it wasn't just here in the, this resurrection, these early hours, but Jesus went on, as Peter will say later, that he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And these 11 doubting men who had been scattered, remember, one had denied knowing him three times, one who said we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. These men, because of the resurrection of the Messiah, began what has withstood every onslaught that unbelief can throw at it for the last 2,000 plus years. And the church of Christ continues to this day and will never be destroyed. That's a comforting thought for us today as well. To be sure that because of on whom the church is built, we have the assurance that the persecution that we are perhaps beginning today to see the very fringes of, that no matter how intense that gets, that the church will prevail because Christ will prevail. Well, let's add another character to this third act, a very unlikely and unwitting witness. In fact, we'll call it that, the unwitting witness, or perhaps witnesses, because we're going to look at a group, a group that we haven't yet encountered, but that are unwitting witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. Over in Matthew chapter 27, we read this. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, so that would be Saturday, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Remember, I told you we were going to come and see that that's the fear, and that's the fear that the story will be put out there. And in fact, we'll see that that story is put out, but not by the disciples. Uh, going on, Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. It's so wonderful to see these demonstrations of the, the frailty and the weakness of even the most hardened men in the face of the work of God and His messengers. Because we have here a dead body. We have a tomb that is covered with a huge stone. We have the seal now of the Roman governor on it saying, keep away, keep back. And we have a detachment of Roman guards. Three times in that passage that I just read, we read the word secure. Order that the tomb be made secure. Pilate says, okay, go and make it as secure as you can. And the response is that they went and made the tomb secure. They were to make, taking no chances. But then the angel descends after they've done that. There's a great earthquake that we read and the stone that they are bound with their lives to protect as Roman soldiers. That stone's rolled away. And the guards, trained guards, members of the, the, the Roman army, for fear of him, we read, 
that the guards trembled and became like dead men. That means they passed out. Notice, uh, as we read this morning, if you read the record in the other Gospels uh, of the resurrection, that nothing's said about the Roman soldiers at the tomb. They don't run into any of them. And why is that? They're gone. Trying to figure out now, having awoken and, and seen what has happened, they are trying to figure out how they are going to explain this to their superiors without losing their heads let alone their jobs. Matthew 28 also says, and here, here's the, the report, while they were going, uh, that's the women, uh, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Notice that. The Roman guards go to the Jewish chief priests to tell them to see, to see what to do. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if any of this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Sounds like something that could be in the pages of our own newspapers today. What a wonderful providence, though, is this very fear that the disciples would come and steal Jesus' body that God uses to actually refute those who would bring up such a charge who would say that Jesus' body was stolen. When unbelievers, when theological liberals who want to deny all supernatural events say that Christ could not have risen from the dead, they often resort to this theory. The very theory that Pilate and the chief priests and the Pharisees fabricated in the face of the evidence. And notice that the guards reported all that had taken place. That's what they reported. And then they come up with this other story, a story that most definitely had not taken place. And it was an unbelievable story then. It's an unbelievable story now. And about this lie which the chief priests and the elders give to the guards to tell, along, of course, with a good deal of money, we find that it's not even a good lie. Was anyone, and are we, really to believe that these guards, on such an important detail, would all of them fall asleep? That they would not set up watches, which would be normal, and at least one of them be awake? I mean, these, again, are trained soldiers of the empire, the Roman Empire. And even then, are we to believe that in the quiet of night, that a group of men could come, roll a... 2,000-pound stone out of, from in front of a tomb and take a body and not have awakened at least one of them if they were sleeping. And then a final question. If we grant that the guards fell asleep and that none of them were awakened by the noise of the activity, if they were asleep, if all of that is true, how then do the guards know what happened? How did they know that someone came and stole his body? It's just a bad lie. But that then is why they become uh, unwitting witnesses. 
So we've had the faithful women and the instructive angels and the doubting disciples and the unwitting witnesses. Let's look finally at what we'll call the blessed beneficiaries. Just briefly. We said this in connection with the crucifixion, but it cannot go unsaid in regard to the resurrection, that this was all done for a reason. It was done first and foremost above anything else, as all things are, to glorify God. We also have to recognize that that the resurrection happened because it couldn't help but happen, right? Jesus was raised from the dead because he, being God, Acts 2.24 says, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Romans 4.25 says that Christ was crucified and was raised for our salvation. 4.25 of Romans says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you read the book of Acts, if you read the epistles, you'll see that the crucifixion and the resurrection always go together. And who are the hour that Paul speaks of in Romans 4? For whose benefit was Christ delivered and raised up? Well, again, it was for all of those who would look to Christ for their salvation. For those whom God would turn to his Son. It is for those who trust in Christ and rest in him and call upon his name. It is for them. It is for you, if that is you. That all we have seen last Sunday and Friday and this morning were done. As Christ overcame death, as he defeated the devil, as he did what was necessary as a substitutionary sacrifice to take the place of sinners. He didn't just die for sinners. He died instead of sinners. If you trust in Christ, he didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. So that you could be made right with God. We are the ones who are blessed. We are the blessed beneficiaries of all that has taken place. So today we do not simply celebrate an event. We celebrate a Savior. A Savior who suffered the torment of the wrath of God on the cross, who, as we profess together, was crucified, dead, and buried and who was raised to life that we might be made right with God, and who still lives and ever lives, the Scripture says, to make intercession for us before the Father. The Lord and giver of life, God and man in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, who was murdered, is raised from the dead. And so we have the glorious conclusion that though he was dead, he did not stay dead. But that the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. And to that we say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this high point of history, which is what it is, O Lord, that, that you had planned that you executed, Father, that you brought to pass, that your Son, Jesus Christ, who was 
delivered up for our sins, was raised for our justification, was raised so that we might be right with you. We thank you for the, the resurrection. We thank you for the victory over all that Christ has won. We pray, Father, that as we go on now to remember his crucifixion in another way, that you would bless us as well. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.